Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Plays The Thing. Before we get into today's episode, I have recorded this kind of preface to the first of the Coriolanus episodes because we recorded it on Shakespeare's birthday, but we didn't realize it until after we had recorded the show. So Sarah Jane Bentley, who joins me on the plays, the thing for Coriolanus sent me an email after we got done recording. She said, Oh no, it's the bard's birthday. And we completely forgot. So uh, thankfully, our editor, Logan, has added this on to the beginning of the show, and we just want to say happy birthday to the Bard. He was born on this day, April 23rd, 1564 in Stratford-upon-Avon in England, 456 years ago, and we are still reading and recording about him today. Hope you enjoy the show. What's the matter, you dissentious rogues that rubbing the poor itch of your opinion make yourselves scabs? We have ever your good word. He that will give good words to thee will flatter beneath abhorring. What would you have, you curs, that like nor peace nor war? The one affrights you, the other makes you proud. He that trusts to you where he should find you lions, finds you hares, where foxes, geese... Who deserves greatness, deserves your hate. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Plays The Thing. That was Rafe Fiennes from the 2011 movie Coriolanus. I am Tim McIntosh, and I am joined by Sarah Jane Bentley, Sarah Jane Welcome back to the show. Tim, it's so nice to be back. <laughs> it's I a- haven't heard those words for such a long time. Welcome to the place of the thing. Yeah. Oh. I'm kind of curious if anything has happened, you know, of significance in your life since you were last on the show. <laughs> well, there was one, one thing, yeah. Something. Uh, so I had a baby what? on the 7th of January. <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth is four months old now, nearly. How is, how's Elizabeth doing? She's a delight. Is she really? Yeah, she smiles a lot. Um, she sleeps really well. Mums will understand that sleeping through the night is a big deal. <laughs> and she's very good at sleeping. She eats really well. They're very simple things, but they, um, they mean a lot. So, yeah, she's, she's great. And how is, how's mom doing? Elizabeth's your first. Yeah, I've, I've certainly um, changed my priorities my perspective everything is different now really really i never was uh kind of prepared for how how different things would be um in a really good way yeah great 
it's, it's great. Um, so it's exciting. I mean, there's a whole life here in my arms and uh, I'm responsible. Yeah. <laughs> Which and, is and pretty she, incredible. And she's there right now. Um, had, yeah, she's here. She started working on memorizing any of the sonnets. I mean, <laughs> we've been uh, so we've been doing the psalms. You were memorizing short bits of the psalms, really? verses here and there. Yeah, but um, I was kidding. I'm but sure when she kidding. starts to talk, they'll just be in there. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> when she when you she starts to speak, it'll be King James English that she speaks in. <laughs> That's what we all speak, more or less, isn't it? <laughs> um, one thing happened that was such an amazing surprise were, I think it, it was probably about week eight of Elizabeth's life, yeah. and this parcel arrived out of the blue, and it had um, these very beautiful muslins in it, which were Harry Potter-themed, and they are from uh, an anonymous sender, and it just said Jocko's Uh-huh. So I emailed David and said, is this from you? Because it's from the States. And um, he said, oh, no, we have this, this group of really um, friendly and kind listeners who do special things for us. And, and they- no sooner had I figured that out, we, about a week later, then we had this beautiful Folio Society book of mm. poetry for children arrive as well. So it was we were thoroughly spoiled by um, your listeners. It was amazing. And we're really grateful. Sarah Jane, I wish I could say that I was surprised by that, but it's just, it's the way that they are. They, Heidi and I and David and I have talked so often off the air. It's like, what? We don't deserve this. No. <laughs> it's really Incredible. remarkable. It's such a, it's just so wonderful. I remember one time I had a student leave me hello Elizabeth I had uh, a student like I think they literally brought an apple to class like the old cliche it was a beautiful apple and they had like thought of me while they were grocery shopping and brought me an apple and just that little apple was so meaningful to me and now the Joe Coast yeah. readers just kind of shower us with gifts Muslim and apparently. so thoughtfully chosen as well you know, all literary, very beautiful. Yeah. Um, and such an amazing surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of our listeners, I did a little poll last night, and this is going to transition us into our play. I did a little poll mm-hmm. on the Facebook page last night. Okay. And I asked the readers uh, a series of questions. Basically, I asked, how familiar are you with this play? And so I gave them a variety of options, like, never read it, never seen a production. Um, I, you know, only know its name from the table of contents in my Shakespeare anthology. Uh, I've read it, but I've never seen it. I've seen it, but I've never read it. So I gave them a whole host of different options. I think by the time I finished, by the time I clocked in to do the show, there were over 200 response. And I did the math and basically Sarah Jane... 80% of the people on the Close Reads Facebook page have no acquaintance with Coriolanus aside from the name. And I was not a bit surprised by that. So one of the things that I want to talk about kind of at the top of the show on our, you know, during the first act is you and I love this play. Like, I mean, I love this play. This is this is one of the best things he ever wrote, and it's Shakespeare. And this play, even though it's like one of like the top plays in the canon, is almost unknown by even by people who like our readers that are quite knowledgeable about the canon. They like Shakespeare. They follow um, the plays, the thing, and I think they're not alone. People just don't know this play, and so. My opening question for you is, how do you explain the kind of gap between the quality of the work and its relative, relative anonymity? Why don't people know this play better? Perhaps one reason is that the language of this play is a bit more challenging than some of the others. Mm-hmm. So a lot of plays are well known because they're chosen by 
schools and perhaps your first encounter with Shakespeare might be uh, when you're sort of 14, 15 at school. Um, and this play, it doesn't have a love story and the language is very political. Yes. And I think those that, in terms of its content, those are more mature themes, um, concerns, if you like. And so perhaps it's a play that you come to as an adult. And, and sadly, a lot of adults perhaps who weren't introduced to Shakespeare at school might never right. um, then come to Shakespeare. Right. That, that would perhaps be my hunch. And then I'm trying to think in terms of the cast, there are, quite, there are lots of good parts in it, aren't there? Probably mm-hmm. some of the best parts for women yeah, in Shakespeare, yeah. I think, Volumnia. So, yeah, it's not one of the kind of top-of-the-pops type ones, is right. it? It's, it's a bit more of a, an acquired taste, this one. It is. It, That's flattering us. <laughs> what do you mean? Wait, what do you mean it's flattering us? Well, it's saying we've got an acquired taste for Shakespeare. <laughs> well, no, I, I think that's true. It's part of, it's part of your job. Yeah. It's part of my job. I think it's true. I also yeah. wonder, I mean, in that opening clip that we heard from... Ray finds that's the first scene, and Ray finds basically steps out to an angry horde that wants corn grain, and he tells them how much he hates them, and he mm-hmm. does it. I mean, he spares no expense in insulting them and uh, telling them he just has no regard for them whatsoever. And so I, I think about someone. Mm. like Coriolanus as compared to someone like Macbeth. Both of these, yeah. are, tra- both of these are tragedies. But yeah. even Macbeth at the beginning of the play, there's something very compelling about him. He's, he's um, a great warrior, but he also see- he's, he's married. He seems to love his wife. He has a great friend in Banquo. And there's a real humanity to him that's very appealing. Whereas Coriolanus from the opening whistle is um, almost barbaric in his egotism. He does not like the plebes. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, we we have the romantics to thank, really, for the popularity of Shakespeare. There was a huge kind of resurgence of interest in well, Hamlet, for example, because of Coleridge. Mm. And and you're right, there isn't a lot you can romanticise about um, Coriolanus because for us moderns, really, and if we think the early modern period started in the 1600s, yeah. the, the, warrior, the warrior whose main objective is valour is, is not a kind of fashionable concern. What we want yeah. are flawed heroes, lovers... Um, and Coriolanus just it, it just doesn't fit that. Yeah, world. we just got done doing um, as you like it. Heidi and I did, and and I thought Coriolanus is almost the antitype of Orlando. If you remember Orlando, right. Orlando who just Sorry, no 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 it's fine. I actually kind of <laughs> I kind of like it, Sarah Jane. I mean, it's like it's real life. It is real life. I don't know if this is what your listeners are going to want. But um, you were saying Orlando and Coriolanus are... <laughs> Orlando strikes me opposite. as the opposite. He's almost like the anti-type of Coriolanus. He's hanging poetry on the trees. I mean, he does fight, but even in the fight that he has in the wrestling match in Act One, he wins by chance, almost by pure chance. He happens to throw this great wrestler and he wins. But all the descriptions of him are, he is kind of, (laughs) I love it. All the descriptions of him are um, about his slight frame. He's not a warrior. He's just the opposite of Coriolanus. So Sarah Jane, I'm going to tell, I'm just going to give a brief overview of the play. I'm going to presume that some of the people that are listening have probably like they're curious about this play and maybe they're going to use act one to kind of get them into the play. So here is the basic cursory outline of the play. Coriolanus is a great warrior. The time is the Roman Republic. So the very top of the play, there are Russian mobs that are begging for corn 
they're starving, they're begging for corn, and Meninius, one of the consuls of the Republic, meets them and tells them a story, which I think I'm going to, like, we can dwell on that. Hey, there's Elizabeth. I don't know if everybody can, we're probably not going to have the video, but everybody, I get to see Elizabeth. She's smiling at me. She looks really happy. She's beautiful. And I'm going to tell her a little bit about um, Meninius. He's a consul for the Roman Republic. And he's kind of in this uh, situation where he's really good friends with Coriolanus and he needs to kind of like draw the peace. But in the middle of this rabble, storming the gates, attempting to get corn, our hero shows up, Caius Martius. So he's not yet Coriolanus, he's Caius Martius. He shows up and from that clip that we heard in the opening, uh, the very top of the show, he despises absolutely despises the lower classes of Rome. He has no tolerance for them. And there's a kind of, he thinks in terms of, if Rome is going to be great, you people cannot be great. You're kind of the enemy of the greatness of Rome. The play progresses and soon um, Coriolanus Caius Martius is sent out to defend Rome against their great enemies at Corioli, in which he does battle with Ophidius, who is his arch enemy. Coriolanus is injured in the battle, but he wins the battle and he returns home to the Senate. The Senate praises him, thanks him. You have triumphed over our enemies. We were so worried. We couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so much. You deserve honors. You really deserve honors. But now, and this is a key part of the play, um, to, to achieve these honors, Coriolanus, who's now been called Coriolanus because he conquered at Corioli, so he's kind of given the names of his enemies in triumph, Coriolanus must humble himself display himself and his injuries to the people in order to receive the honors from the Senate. He does this. He does not want to do this. He does not feel like he should lower himself to the approval of the plebes because he's one of the greats. They're the crows. He's an eagle. Why would I lower myself to them? He does it anyway. The representatives of the plebes take this as an opportunity to kind of subvert him he is cast out of Rome, and then in a great twist, Coriolanus is so angry at Rome that he goes to his enemies, joins with Ophidius, his arch enemy, and is prepared to march on Rome when, so this is the spoiler alert, if you don't want to know what happens at the conclusion of the play, you need to fast forward about 30 to 60 seconds, um, Meninius dispatches Coriolanus's mother, wife, son, and a friend to meet him on the road to Rome and to beg for mercy. And we have already met Volumnia, the, um, his mother. We've already met his wife, his son, and their friend. Um, but the relationship between Volumnia and Coriolanus is one of the more interesting ones for me in all of Shakespeare. It's, it's a little bit bizarre. Um, and he seems to have more affection for his mother than he does. He loves his wife, but he seems to have a stronger kinship and affection for his mother than he does with his wife. His mother, in one of the great speeches in the canon, his mother convinces him to turn back. And Ophidius, seeing that Coriolanus has been... Um, convinced by his mother to not march on Rome, feels betrayed. What does he do? He kills Coriolanus. The conclusion of the play is Coriolanus kind of, um, who has backed off out of his affection for his family, uh, being killed by his arch enemy after all. And it's a bloody play. And it's a violent play. And it's, a, like, the language is deeply complex, but that's where we are. Um, so I, I want to ask you, this is a, my first question for you, Sarah Jane. What do you think of Coriolanus, our hero of the play? He is, well, hard to like if we compare him to someone like Hamlet, for yeah. example. 
Um, personally, I absolutely love him because he loves the truth. And one of his great failings as a politician is that he's unable to lie convincingly. And he can only say, I think Menenia says of him something like his, his heart is his mouth. He can only say yeah. what he feels. Um, he's, he matches his, de- his words with deeds. So there's, in so many of Shakespeare's plays, there's this kind of um, tension between what a character says and what he does. But in Coriolanus, the two are one. He is, he's completely unified in words and deeds. And that's really hard to bear because you're pelted with this missile, which is the truth, which is the hardest <laughs> missile to be able to withstand. And um, he's always being told, you know, please, Coriolanus, can you just be a bit milder? You know, don't yeah. say what you think. Just, just smile and and just bite your tongue. And he says, "No. Why? Why would you have me be less of a man than the man I am? You brought right. me up to be like this. I am a child of Rome, and I'm true to my nature. I can't be false to my nature." Um, and so he's quite blunt in that sense. Um, I, f- I find him really likable in that in that regard. And he's an interesting protagonist because. He's dislikable, and yet we can still sympathise with him. So the tragedy at the end is um, its hard to judge whether he got what he deserved or whether he's been wronged. Right. And I think that makes it really fascinating as a, as a character study. You know, was he manipulated by his mother or was this part of his kind of autonomous rebellion against the mother that brought him up, which is both Rome and Volumnia? Right, right. What are your thoughts about him? I feel the exact same way. I love Coriolanus. I absolutely love this character. And I sometimes feel, I I wonder if I should, because when he opens his mouth before the people, he's so full of venom. I mean, just so full of spite that I think, oh gosh, Coriolanus. I feel myself like like Meninius milder, please, just a little bit milder. And it it creates this kind of tension. This is, I think, the most, how do I say this? I think if you were a teacher and you want to try to see um, the main problems of a republic condensed and in a conflict-driven play, Coriolanus might be your play because there's this tension between the ruling class, the nobility, the aristocrats, and the lower classes. Um, And Coriolanus absolutely refuses to, uh, he not only, he, he has a hard time humbling himself before them because he just doesn't respect them. He no. thinks that they are a canker. He th- it's not just that they, like they, you know, they're not educated. It's not just that they uh, don't have the sort of like skills that he has or the aristocrats has. No, he sees them as sort of a, a kind of a virus or a cancer that has the potential to erode the greatest state since, um, since Athens. I mean, he says so in the play. He says, uh, this bench is, a, we're sitting at a greater bench than the one that was in Athens. So he, he sees the people as a great threat to that. And he does not mince words in telling them that that's what he thinks. So no, that's right. He calls, them, that- he, he calls them fragments. He calls them uh, curs. He compares them to rotting bodies. He um, he calls them scabs. Uh-huh. He's he's so full of vitriol. You're right. So much. Why, why do you think that is? What what does he have against them? <laughs> I think it's that, as he says, they they didn't fight for Rome when they were called to, and now they want corn gratis. They want right. free corn. Right. Why? Why should the city provide for you when you did nothing for your city? Yeah. And this is this is the very difficult paradox in the play is that Coriolanus the play says the people are the city uh-huh. and Coriolanus hates the people uh-huh. but he loves Rome uh-huh. so what does he actually love right right okay. it's a very interesting let, let me ask a question if 
the people had not abdicated their duty and they had gone to fight, or let's just say that the people were not under threat and there was no call to arms. Mm. Do you think that Coriolanus, from what you know about his character in the play, do you think that Coriolanus would still despise them in the way that he despises them? Yes, because the other thing he despises them for is them being fickle. He calls uh-huh. them Hydra. Uh-huh. So it's, it's like they have, um, you know, 100 heads uh, all saying different things. They're contradictory um, and they can't rule themselves. They need to be ruled by an elite, right. so he believes. Right. So I suppose those are the two things from the play, I think, that he hates about the people. The one is that they yeah. didn't fight. And the second is that they're all words, but they're, they're just kind of whirling words that contradict. Yes. They change their minds all the time. Um, and he thinks that his reasons are superior to theirs. So it's really, the play really looks at some of the weaknesses of a democratic system. So I, I think part of the reason that this play is so compelling is that both my country and your country are in the middle of a um, kind of an upswell of populism. Our president and your prime minister both get called in the press, and I think probably accurately, they get called populists. Mm. And um, even though the arch enemy of Coriolanus in the play is Ophidius, the, the enemy's general, his deeper enemy is really these two representatives of the lower classes that have been given a spot mm. on the Senate. Um, and he thinks that they are sort of representatives of, um, they, uh, they speak with a sort of popular mouth. Mm. And because they do, Coriolanus despises them because they kind of in some ways should know better. They at least, they, they're in a position that they should know better. And I find that there's, there's a twist late in the play that the two representatives of the popular, of, of the people, cast Coriolanus out of Rome. And then when they realize that he's marching on Rome, they absolutely relent and acknowledge his greatness after despising him the entire play. They turn back and they kind of, they're like, yeah, he's as great as everybody says he is, says he was. And gosh, we need to do anything that we can to save our city because yeah, he's that kind of general and he's that kind of leader. That's it. Sarah Jane, one of the, um, I said, I said earlier on that Ophidius is Coriolanus's arch enemy but maybe it's actually these two tribunes that are the representatives of the people. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a really good observation because Coriolanus respects Alphidius. He's a lion that he's proud to hunt. Yeah. But the tribunes he utterly disregards because he sees them as power seeking. He sees them as illegitimately seeking power because they haven't done anything for Rome to earn it. They have no cicatrices. They have no wounds on their body. Right to show that they've slain the enemies of Rome. Shakespeare uses this really interesting metaphor of um, the tribunes as taking the channel of water of the people and running it into their own ditch for their own advantage. Yeah. That, that they can manipulate the power of the people and kind of wield it to their own advantage. Um, and he doesn't see them at all as worthy of possessing this kind of power. Um, and it's an interesting metaphor because at the time they were trying to get more water into London. And uh-huh. so it meant that the authorities had um, run roughshod over people's land to channel water through mm. um, to, to feed the city and, um, and kind of individual rights and perhaps very wealthy landowners ha- weren't able to stand up against this. And Coriolanus is very much on the side of, of the elites. So he, um, he despises what would essentially be kind of MPs in Britain, huh. elected members of parliament who basically have the voice of the people. Um, which, what are, what are they called in the US? Senators? Yeah, it, I mean, traditionally the Senate, because it has longer terms, six years, is viewed as sort of like the upper house. Yeah, and the House of Representatives, okay. because it's two years, is viewed as the lower house. I think in the popular imagination, the two are kind of conflated. 
mm. today. But I think for the most part in American history, the Senate has been viewed as the upper house. Yeah. Closer to the House of Lords, maybe. Yes, exactly. And closer to the senators in the play. The actual Exactly, right. Exactly. Senators. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, two more characters that I want to hear your thoughts on, Sarah Jane. Volumnia, uh, the mother of Coriolanus, who we meet in the first act. She, oh my goodness, what a... <laughs> What a Tiger mom. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, can you describe her relationship to Coriolanus and what your impressions of her are? Well, my first concern at the moment is to make sure that I'm not like her as a new mother. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what would tempt you to be like her? What would tempt you to be? Well, maybe we should what talk about she what she's like. First, <laughs> I then- was proud to let him seek danger where he was like to find fame. Um, she, I think my view of her is that she lives vicariously through her son. That as the Roman matron, it's not her duty to go out and fight for Rome, mm-hmm. although she would if she was allowed to. So she, um, and she'd probably be brings a up great warriors. warrior. She would. He, she says, yeah. thou, thy valiantness was mine, thou suckst it from me. Uh-huh, and, uh-huh. Um, she, she has, has molded this Martius and he's aware of it. Um, but that also makes her very vulnerable because the moment he stops doing what she wants, she's lost all control of everything yeah. because she's put everything into Martius. Um, I think as a metaphor... Shakespeare might be playing with the idea that Volumnia is Rome and that Rome is a, an overbearing mother mm-hmm. who sacrifices its own children. So at, at the end of the play, sorry, listeners, but the clue is in the title. When, <laughs> when Coriolanus is sacrificed, um, it's what Volumnia wants. Yes. So there's this very strange sort of cannibalistic desire to the mother uh, both Volumnia and Rome. And it's um, it's a very harsh criticism of Roman society. And I think you find that quite often in Shakespeare's plays. He doesn't often p- portray Rome favorably. So in, do you see a kind of parallel with Julius Caesar in this regard? Um, I don't know Julius Caesar the play that well, but in terms of um, Antony and Cleopatra, which I think he was writing mm-hmm. around about the same time as Coriolanus, uh, you see Rome as this sort of uncompromising, um, very uh, results-driven kind of society that just totally annihilates anything that stands in its way. Right. Um, and there's a, a huge lack of gratitude there's a lack of gratitude in Rome. The people yeah. are ungrateful to the leaders and the leaders are ungrateful to the people. And I think that, that perhaps that might be the key to the play, ingratitude. Okay, this, this is a, the ingratitude between the two classes makes me want to introduce our next character, Meninius. Um, I wonder, I, I have been tempted to make the case that Meninius is the actual hero of this play. He is, so he is on the Senate, he's a consul, um, and he shows up in the play before Coriolanus does. So he's the first to meet the people who are begging for corn, and he's calm, and he's measured, and he, in some ways, kind of wins the people in the middle of their heat. He succeeds in kind of dialing down the heat. I want to play a long clip of him telling a story. The story is actually from Aesop, one of Aesop's fables that he uses when the people show up at the gates demanding corn from the leaders of the Roman Republic. Um, It's a longer clip, so everybody bear with us. And it's taken from an old Richard Burton production of Coriolanus in which Richard Burton, the great great Welsh actor with like the greatest voice of the 20th century. But having said that, I'm not gonna let you hear uh, Richard Burton's voice until maybe a little bit like a subsequent podcast. So let's hear Meninius give his explanation about the relationship between 
the people and its leadership, or in his metaphor, the different parts of the body and the stomach, which is functionally the leader of the body. I shall tell you a pretty tale. It may be you have heard it, but since it serves my purpose, I'll venture to stay a little more. Well, I'll hear it, sir. Yet you must not think to pop off our disgrace with a tale. But I'm pleased to deliver. There was a time when all the body's members rebelled against the belly, <laughs> thus accused it. But only like a gulf, it did remain in the midst of the body, idle and unactive, still covering the viand, never bearing like labor with the rest, where the other instruments did see, and hear, devise, instruct, walk, feel, and mutually participate, did minister unto the appetite and affection common of the whole body. The belly answered. Well, so what answer made the belly? Sir, I shall tell you. With a kind of smile, which ne'er came from the lungs, but even thus, for look you, I may make the belly smile as well as speak. It tauntingly replied to the discontented members, the mutinous parts that envied his receipt, even so most fitly as you malign our senators, for that they are not such as you. Your belly's answer. What? The kingly crowned head, the vigilant eye, the counsellor heart, the armour soldier, our steed the leg, the tongue, our trumpeter, with, with other muniments and petty helps in this our fabric, if that they... What then? For me this fellow speaks. <laughs> what then? What then? Should by the cormorant belly be restrained, who is the sink of the body? Well, what then? The, the former agents, if they did complain, what could the belly answer? I will tell you. If you'll bestow a small of what you have little patience uh, about, uh, you'll hear the belly's answer. You're wrong about it. Uh, note me this, good friend. Your most grave belly was deliberate. Not rash, like his accusers. And thus answered. True is it, my incorporate friends, quoth he, that I receive the general food at first, which you do live upon. And fit it is. Because I am the storehouse and the shop of the whole body. But if you do remember, I send it through the rivers of your blood, even to the court, the heart, the seat of the brain, and through the cranks and offices of man, the strongest nerves, and small inferior veins from me receive that natural competency whereby they live. And though that all at once, you, my good friends, this set the belly, mark me. I so well, well. Though all at once, cannot see what I do deliver out to each. Yet I can make my audit up that all from me do back receive the flower of all and leave me but the brand. What say you to it? It, it was an answer. How that was the actor Michael Hordern as Meninius Agrippa, a consul during the Roman Republic. So before we heard that clip, Sarah Jane, I suggest that maybe Meninius might be, he might be our kind of subtle hero in this play. And let me defend that. And then I'd like to hear what you think about the clip we just heard. If this play is about two rival parties, the lower classes in the aristocracy who are unable to come to terms and recognize the value of each other, Meninius is the one. I mean, he's, he's undoubtedly on the aristocratic, he, he's on the side of the aristocrats, and he is an aristocrat. But he is the one who kind of recognizes um, that statecraft requires getting both parties at the table. And he's the one that recognizes both parties have to kind of recognize the value of each other. They don't necessarily have to get along. They don't have to be good friends, but they've got to recognize the value of each other and kind of give each other um, the space that's due them in order for this republic to work. What do you think about Meninius? Is there any way that he could be kind of the, the, the background hero in the, between these two rival factions i think he can be he can be heroic in terms uh -huh. of the genre he can't be the hero but that's just a generic point yeah, yeah. but yeah he does have heroic qualities in in his statesmanship and his political ability which is exactly what coriolanus lacks and i think the thing about menenius is that he does understand the value of 
the relationship between the Senate and the plebeians, because what, what he understands is that they're mutually dependent and the Senate hate that and the people hate that, but they can't survive without right. each other because right. you don't need a Senate if there are no people. Yeah. And the people need to be governed. They need the rule of law. They need, um, you know, the provision of justice and whatever else. So they hate the fact that they're mutually dependent. And this metaphor, the extended metaphor that Menenius talks about here, um, really illustrates that. But it's, I think there's a bit of a twist here because he's sort of saying, look, the senators are this uh, benign belly that smile and they, they chew uh -huh. up all the corn and, they, and, and we, we keep the chaff for ourselves and we give you the best bits. We send it out through the veins to you, the people, the limbs. When actually what we see in the play is, is this belly, it eats the limbs and consumes everything. Uh, uh. And it's actually smiling with this grave smile, which is like, you know what, I'm going to eat you too. <laughs> this sounds like it harkens back to kind of what you see as one of Shakespeare's complaints in um, Antony and Cleopatra and also in this place. Maybe it's a complaint against Roman society at the time. Do you, do you see that in, in his kind of um, reshaping or in his telling of this tale and kind of omitting what the belly actually does? Is that what you see? Yeah, I think that there's, um, there's a subtle criticism going on here. I think Shakespeare's so brilliant. He's, he's criticizing Rome because on the one hand, he's saying, look, King James, my patron, England's so much better than, than Rome, and Rome was pretty great, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. England's better. But he's also saying to, to King James and to the people in the audience, look what happens in a society where Parliament and the people can't get on with the monarch. And Shakespeare's exploring this tension over corn at a time when in England there were corn riots because right. the king had been greedy and had been requisitioning all kinds of um, goods from the people because he has this right of purveyance. And there were riots and Parliament and the king could not get on. In fact, James had suspended Parliament for years. So it was impossible to even have the debate. So Shakespeare writes a play that shows us a hero who is um, identified with James, Coriolanus. James himself was instructed to speak mildly to Parliament. I didn't know that. That exact word, yeah. That was I did the not know that. Given. So, so it's very complex, isn't it? Because we see a hero who we think, wow, what a hero. Um, but then we also feel sorry for the people who are being ridden over roughshod and whose, whose needs and wants are being ignored. And so Shakespeare, at the same time as flattering James is also sort of teaching a bit of a political lesson, saying, look, a democracy can't work if, if all sides aren't playing their part in the body. Right, right. And he, he does in the play manage to criticise James perhaps for being too profligate, but he also lionises James for being, uh, you know, a man who does what he wants right. and true to his beliefs. So... I, I, I just can't help but hear the echoes of what's going on I don't want to speak too much about what's going on in Britain, but I, I, mm. I think of Boris Johnson and Donald Trump as these, these voices, regardless of what we think about them, that are intending um, to give voice to kind of like this large unknown body of people who feel like they've been sort of like shut out of the halls of power for a long time. And I just find this play is trying to address that same that same issue and i i think this is this is the problem of a republic or a democracy is that the knife's edge of statesmanship is kind of like achieving some sort of how do you say it some sort of peaceful regard between these two groups the ruling mm. class and the popular class mm. and trying to achieve that kind of like grace of balance between two classes that have nothing in common, that might as well be from two different countries that don't really belong in the same country. They speak a different well, the language. The thing they have in common is that they all love Rome. Yes, that's true. They all love Rome. Mm. And that's what the thing that they have to remember. And that's, that's the power of patriotism, I suppose. Yes. It's supposed to unite across all boundaries. What's so interesting is, especially in the middle of this play, 
what Coriolanus thinks that Rome is and what the people think that Rome is are such different things. They're such different visions of kind of like the ideals of Rome. And that's where it begins to kind of like peel apart. Their rivalry begins to peel apart and it become, and it becomes something that is ultimately kind of irreconcilable, irreconcilable. That is a beautiful baby, Elizabeth. So listeners, sorry, I, I, Elizabeth was getting a little bit fussy. So her dad took her away for a little bit and now she's back and she's just such a little beauty. Maybe we should <laughs> like, I don't know, with your permission, I know we're all in kind of like <laughs> Corona shutdown. I don't really want anyone to see me in my current state, but it might be nice to get like a little snap of Elizabeth. Cause I think the Facebook. I can send you that. one. I'll send you one. Okay. Um, she's a beauty. <laughs> I wonder if there's a kind of demagoguery about um, Boris Johnson and Donald, President Donald Trump that is obviously required if you're going to be elected. Right. And that, I think, is quite similar to someone like Absalom, David's son Absalom, the guy who could stand in the gate and, and say, hey, people, what, what are your... What are your grievances? Tell me and I'll go and I'll make the case for you and I'm, I'm going to put it right. And the thing I've, that Sarah Jane, talk- I've never thought about Absalom as sort of like a, a popular demagogue. I've never thought that, but it absolutely fits, doesn't it? Yeah, and he has great hair as well, like yeah, Bojo that's right, right, President Trump. Yeah, <laughs> so true. <laughs> um, but Coriolanus, of course, is not like that. He he yeah. won't compromise on anything. He's got no finesse. Um, I think this is why Fines portrays him so well, is that he, he portrays him as this like battle-hardened warrior who is dysfunctional whenever it's peacetime. Yes. Um, which is why he needs someone like Menenius as a father figure right. to be able to communicate what, what Coriolanus can't. Because Menenius clearly understands Coriolanus. He does. Um, and is able to soften him a little. Um, and and Coriolanus Cor- respects Menenius, and Menenius loves him. I think, as as a son, almost. I think so. Um, it's interesting. I'm trying to think. In Plutarch, I think Volumnia has a husband who's still alive, but I think that Shakespeare really focuses on Volumnia and Coriolanus by getting rid of all her other children and wiping her husband out of the picture. So it becomes this really intense exploration of their relationship. Which brings us to um, Ophidius. Th- this, the lack of fathers in Shakespeare's play to me is this sort of glaring, or it's it's this very loud silence. And it, there's a way in which you can kind of read the play is that Coriolanus is on a quest to kind of. Um, please a father figure that's not present in the in the play and in a strange way his arch enemy on the battlefield Ophidius in a strange way there's a kind of there's a there's a fraternal kinship that they have that sometimes it's a little bit romantic in act the late act four early act five um and it also sometimes seems like it's a kind of fatherly relationship that Coriolanus wants to have with Ophidius. What do you, what do you make of Ophidius and what do you make of the relationship that he has with Coriolanus? I think there's an extent to which we find it really hard to understand the relationship between two warriors who are peerless and are each other's nemesis and to the extent that they want to fight each other to see right. who's going to win. So there are lots of metaphors in the play that compare the marriage bed to the battlefield and Volumnia huh. cultivates these quite a lot. So when, when Coriolanus crosses the threshold into Alphidius's kind of lair in Antium, he's welcomed like a bride. Yes. On the night of her so wedding. strange. It's so strange sounding It's strange to us. to us, but I wonder if in warrior culture that that's kind of a, a parallel that they use because they do love making war. Yeah. As much yeah. as they love making love. And um, yeah, there's, there's I, lots of imagery like that in the play. My friend Andrew likes mixed martial arts 
fighting, which in the U.S. is, I think it's the fastest growing sport in the U.S. And so MMA. I've watched a few fights with him. MMA. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know MMA? Oh, is yeah. it vegan? Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, if not for Andrew, I would yeah. never watch it because I just I I get so I'm so <laughs> empathetic that I put myself in the <laughs> ring. I actually asked Andrew this. This is a total side note. I was watching a fight with Andrew and I'm like, the guys are getting ready to go at it and it's going to be bloody and violent. And like one person has to tap out. That's how the fight ends or, you know, like hardly ever does it go the full five rounds. And I get so like, I can feel my pulse increasing. And I'm like, Andrew, aren't you like nervous? The fight, the, the fight's about to start. And he's like, no, I'm not nervous at all. And I figured out it's because, I really do put myself in the ring. Like I feel for like these two guys because I just empathize with them so much. I just feel the suffering that's about to happen. So I brought this up because at the end of the fights, there is a moment and it happens in every fight where these two warriors bloodied and bruised meet in the middle of the ring immediately after the fight. And they, they hug each other and it's the most tender heartfelt respectful moment it's like the most humane moment in like the middle of this just like violent brutality there's just this beautiful moment of genuine like affection between these two warriors and so i can see that relationship mm. very easily between coriolanus and ophidius mm. and there, there's a respectful parameters to their relationship because they they both believe in valor and yes. in reputation and they both and, have it and they both and they have, have it have so exactly yeah. that's, that's the way in which they engage with one another on those terms um which makes it so fascinating when there's this power struggle between them later on because yeah i'm jumping ahead here but yeah. coriolanus criticizes the democratic that the republican system in Rome for having two leaders, two authorities, he says. When two authorities are up, neither supreme, a gap forms and you fall in between the two. Um, and he says that's the problem with having the people and the Senate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then he finds himself in that very situation where you have both Amphidius and Coriolanus trying to lead the, uh, the Volscan army. Yeah. And, and what happens is there's this, this tension. And there's a kind of rift de developing in the Volshkins. And Fines portrays this really well in his film. Do you, um, what is the name of the actor who plays Ophidius in the Fines film? It's Gerard Butler. Yeah, Gerard Butler. And he's just, he's superb. Yeah. He's so superb because he's so, um, he's this, he's a man's man. That actor is. And I, I don't know, I just thought he, I found him perfectly suited for that role. Yeah, um, because Fines shows really well the vulnerability of Coriolanus to be manipulated by his mother. Yes, yes, he does. He does. Okay, I, I want to do two things before we close the show. First, do you see a kind of overlay between um, Rome and the Volskis? Is it sort of an an analogy, an overlay for Athens and Sparta? Is that just me? Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. So we're taking it to a Grecian. Yeah, I mean, are, are, are these, yeah, these two sort of socially, these two social organizations, they seem to me to kind of map onto each other. It's interesting. I think. The word antium just means other place. Mm. It kind of means nowhere. So in the play, Shakespeare's kind of showing us there's Rome and then there's everywhere else. And so in that sense, perhaps the Volscans are not, they don't have the kind of identity that the Spartans have. The Spartans in a lot of ways, were, you know, they were superior warriors when they, right. They, um, but then I suppose Shakespeare does also give the Volscans a credibility because otherwise, why would Coriolanus be so proud to have won the name of the city of Coriolis? Um, we don't really know the size of the Volscan army population in comparison to Rome. I mean, would you say yeah. Rome is Sparta or Rome is Athens? 
No, I think Rome just sort of like tiny. did. Right, right. And so that mm-hmm. way, in that way, the analogy breaks down. And the analogy may be overstretched, but I just thought yeah. as far as yeah, the structure of their governance, there were similarities. Oh, yeah, we don't know enough about the Volscans, do we? Whether they were kind of just um, sort of out-and-out warriors in the way that the Spartans, whether they trained everything in order right. to go to war. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, me neither. But you're right, in the same way that, that Athens had a superior culture, in a sense. Rome seems to, in the play. Yeah. Okay, let's talk briefly, because I think people are going to be curious to see a production of Coriolanus. If they've listened to this, they are, you know, hopefully going to read the play, and hopefully they'll be able to see a production. So, um, (laughs) I'll just start off, Sarah Jane. I think that there's a production of this play um, by the BBC that was done in 84, which I think is one of, it's the, it's maybe the best videoed production of a Shakespeare play that I've ever seen. It, it is stunning to me. The lead actor is a man named Alan Howard, who he's one of these just incredible British actors that never, I don't know. I think he just never made an attempt to enter Hollywood and make his movie. I just get the impression from Alan Howard. He might be a little bit of a Coriolanus. He was just a purist. You know, and so we don't know his name. The only thing I, I looked him up on IMDb, and the only thing that I could find that I recognized was that he was the voice of Sauron in the uh, Lord of the Rings movies. Which don't let that pull you back, readers. He's <laughs> he's delightful. It's just such a frightening voice. Um. So that if I could recommend. A viewing, I would recommend that 1984 because he is a tour de force. Alan Howard's Coriolanus is absolutely a hurricane. He's incredible. I could watch that film over and over and over. I just find him, I can't take my eyes off him. The entire time I can't take my eyes off him. You and I have both seen um, a production that was done in the National Theater recently I saw it via the internet, but you, Sarah Jane, saw it with students live in person. And I was very jealous. Can you, can you tell us anything about that production? One day, Tim, we'll go to the theater together in London. I would love it. Yeah. I would love it. We'll do that. Um, the Donmar with uh, Hiddleston as Coriolanus. Yeah, it was incredible. It's a really visceral production. There was lots of kind of, blood and guts on the stage. It's very loud, very raucous, very physical. Um, so teenage boys really loved that, despite yeah. their initial skepticism. Really? Do we have to go to the theatre? <laughs> they wanted to go see a movie. Said, you will thank me one day. Yes. Don't yes. doubt it. <laughs> and did and they did thank you afterwards? Yes, of course. They, they, they knew a good thing when they saw it. Um, yeah. And I think Hiddleston is an amazing Coriolanus because he does have the potential to be a really good politician. There is something charming about that Coriolanus. You see, he's just that little bit gentler and um, uh, more endearing, especially when you see him with Volumnia and Valeria in comparison to Fines, who's just Mm -hmm. kind of really gnarled. He's a battle axe. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So I like shaved head scars everywhere whereas um you know old Antonio Hiddleston is he just can't get rid of that natural velvety oh yeah sort of smoothness that he has um yeah so he was excellent because when he lost his temper you could see that there there really was potential for him to climb down and to be gentler and milder but that he just couldn't control his temper whereas with fines his Coriolanus you think he he's only got one there's only one gear. <laughs> Volcanoes can only produce lava. Yeah. Volcanoes yeah. can't produce cake icing. Yeah. So the production was fantastic. And I think you said how impressed you were by the, um, the magnitude of the action that, that was able to be conveyed yes. on such a small stage. Incredible. Mm. Incredible. So I, I think for so what I would say to recommend um, a viewing to our listeners I think that the Ray Fiennes version is the most accessible. It's bloody. 
it's very bloody. It might even be rated R. I don't even know. So if you've got kids in the house, mm. it's probably not for kids viewing. I think it's really good, but it is truncated. It's greatly abridged. The, it is. Say. Well, I think that, that that's part of its strength, really, because he does, Fines does give it the cut and thrust of a sort of war zone. He chooses Eastern Europe. Yes. And that sort of um, Bosnia-Croatia conflict as a setting to transpose the action to, which I think works really well because there were all kinds of war crimes. Um, lots of Geneva Convention behavior was completely suspended there. Right. That it was a totally brutal conflict. Um, and so I, I think that does capture something perhaps of how, how raw and violent ancient Rome could be. I think finds yeah. it quite, quite canny in, in that choice of setting. And by the way, it was filmed, some of it was filmed in Serbia. Yes. And they actually yeah. did a production of it on President Tito's island in Croatia. They actually find performed a, th a theatre production of it on a private island off the coast really? of Croatia. Yeah. Because a colleague of mine here at school who's the head of drama was, um, he was in the play. I think No he, kidding. Yeah. I'm trying to remember which part he played. Ask him. I'll ask him. Scott Handy's. Yeah, he's quite him. famous. It might have been Titus Lartius. Wow. So um, that was interesting because it's, again, there's that like, sort of political tension. Yes. It's, it's not a very successful democracy. Um, yes. and, and they took the play to an island there and, and performed it. Um, our readers can probably access the Tom Hiddleston play. Some, I saw someone had found it somewhere online. So you can probably access that one. The Alan Howard version from 84, again, it's the high watermark for me. I, I have had a hard time finding that one online, but if somebody does find it online and they want to post on Facebook where it can be found, I would personally be forever in your debt. I always borrowed the DVD from our public library. Um, so that's how I viewed it in the past. Those are some viewing options for you if you want to dive into Coriolanus. So next week, we are going to tackle Act 2. Um, again, I just want to say this is a... This is just an incredible, incredible play. And I have been looking forward, Sarah Jane, to doing this podcast with you because we talked off the air about how much we love this play. And we're now we're finally getting to do it. This delightful bloody complex play i'm so mm. glad that we're back on it at a time of intense political tension yes globally globally and it just i can't help but see that this play just really addresses so simple place. i mean I, I think for shakespeare personality is always politics it's the personality mm. that drives the politics but i think this play might be a, a in some ways a subtle exception he really does, especially in Act Three, deal with the kind of like high-flown rhetoric of statesmanship and the kind of fractures that are inherent in a republic or in a democracy. And that kind of thrills me. I'm going to really look forward to talking to those. Any closing thoughts from you, Sarah Jane? Well, you know, Tim, I'm a bit of a spotter geek and... <laughs> I, I guess our listeners will be reading ahead and um, if there are things that they might want to look for, I yeah. would suggest they try and find um, examples of imagery of thing, of people and things being eviscerated. There's lots of mm. dismemberment in the play. Um, blood, imagery of blood. What does it mean that Martius appears covered in blood in Act 1? Why is that so significant? Um and then th those two things mainly, because obviously we have this image from Menenius of the body that is um, whole and functioning at the beginning of the play. And then we, we see that get torn apart over the course of the play. Yes. Um, and, yes. and anything to do with eating, food, famine, very important in the play. It's, um, oh, it's so brilliant. It's, it's so pathetic to just keep praising it like that without giving <laughs> reasons, but it really no, I is. I think we're giving reasons. I think we're giving reasons. 
Um, and that, that's the, the greatest insult, I think, that, that Coriolanus gives to the people is that he calls them fragments, he says you're disconnected, you're irrelevant. If you're not part of the body of Rome, you're basically nobody. Because in ancient societies, you could choose to be executed or exiled, couldn't you? And exile was considered right. to be worse. Right. So by, by calling the people fragments, he's saying, you're no part of Rome, you don't belong here, you're just irrelevant. Right, yes. Which is a little bit of a foreshadowing to what the worst punishment for Coriolanus might be. It's not mm. death. Mm. It's not death. Well, that's a pretty big hint there, Tim. <laughs> right, I know. I know it is probably probably too obvious, Sarah Jane. <laughs> hey, I'm so I'm so happy that you're back. I'm so happy that you and Elizabeth are doing well. It was really nice to see her and hear her. Um, and I'm looking forward to our subsequent shows with you. I'm really excited to be doing this. I've been enjoying your um, last two with Heidi as well, though. They've been yeah. Superb. The Tempest was excellent. That was great. Oh, I, yeah, that play. Gosh, that play. So wonderful. Hey, uh, listeners, remember, you can join the conversation online on Facebook through the Close Reads discussion group or on Instagram and Twitter at Close Reads Pods and via email by writing to Close Reads Podcasts at gmail.com. And don't forget about our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. And as always, um, there's always great discussion happening on the Facebook page. Please join us there, the Close Reads discussion page. For Sarah Jane Bentley, I am Tim McIntosh. Thanks for joining us on The Plays The Thing and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.